Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. We have two uh, rather special guests today speaking to us from uh, the reservation in Montana, Ms. Susan Kelly and Ms. Peggy White. They are representatives of the Center Pole, also known as well-known Buffalo, a center for Indian youth and populace out on the reservation. Welcome to Seldom Said, ladies. Thank you. I wonder if we can start with a little bit of personal background. If you each, in turn, could tell us who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place. Um, excuse me. My name is Susan Kelly, and I have worked here on the Opsaloka Reservation, otherwise known as Crow, for about 20 years, and I'm the assistant to Peggy Wellnum Buffalo, who runs a nonprofit organization here that she started uh, in 1999, and she does uh, community and youth development, community building and youth development here. Um, I came, I met Peggy, uh, like most things happen, by chance, and I was doing almost the same thing she was, and she asked me to help her with her organization here. Um, I... I was working with her son, who was who who was uh, living here, and helping him get into college. I worked with uh, promising young people who had challenges to higher education, and he happened to come to my attention through her. And after we met that way, she asked me if I would assist her in starting a nonprofit organization, which I knew nothing about. And uh, even though I had a small nonprofit, we weren't organized uh, exactly the way we are now. So I started working with her. Uh, I left my job. I was a uh, in publishing for many years, for 26 years. I worked for Time Life Books, and then I worked for National Geographic, as a as a uh, freelancer, and then I started working with Peggy, and our project here over the last 20 years has grown and grown and grown, and it was just happenstance that I met her. It's like most things happen in this world. You can't really explain how your path got that way, but it did, and so we're still working together on this organization, building the community here in Crow Country. Peggy, I would be curious, given what Susan has just said, we have spoken on the phone privately, both you and I, and you mention as to how you were motivated to do something for the youth. Now, many people will see people in need and simply go about their business. What made you want to do something, not simply watch it, not simply feel it, but help? What made you want to help? Um, first of all, um, my background is, um, I'm, I'm Crow, I'm three-fourths Crow, 
I, my first language is the Crow language, and my second language is English. And being brought up on the reservation in a poor, you know, poor, really um, poorish town in Crow Agency, um, I was, uh, after my father's death at seven years old, I was shipped to um, boarding schools, uh, Catholic boarding schools here on the reservation. And then another boarding, uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs boarding school in Dakota, Pierce, South Dakota. And while I was in the boarding school, um, I had to give up speaking Crow, and I couldn't, um, uh, everything that was done there was, uh, I, I wasn't used to, and it was just like a change for me. So when that happened to me, um, I was working at that time in a, um, we had to work uh, hard there, so they put me in the uh, little boys and little girls um, um, dorm to clean. And stuff like that. So, but I did, and I would um, uh, had to feed them, and they were very undernourished. And I would take the child, and I'll rock them and I'll sing crow. I asked if I could sing crow to them because those were the only songs I knew how. So they gave me permission to sing, so with uh, singing, I, I would have a conversation of all the cool words I would be talking, and I would vision my uh, mother, I would vision my brothers and sisters, there were eight of us, and I would vision my friends at home and everything, so that's how I kind of did some meditation on singing and keeping my language together. But then in the summertime, I also recalled um, church groups from all over would come and have um, come and have um, camps in the park, and we would have a lot of fun. And then when they packed up and left all winter, we'd be talking about how much fun we had that summer. And I recalled all of those stuff that happened to me, and seeing um, people die in the boarding school that were younger than me, that couldn't survive, and then they'll haul them off and bury them up on the hill. Seeing all of that was a big kind of like a nightmare I had to live with. And then I also, that in mind, I said to myself, I lost my mother when I was 18, so I needed a prayer Thing to get involved in, so I um, started going into the Sundances, which uh, my relatives introduced me to, so I prepared myself and went into the Sundance, and I was praying about myself, my walk, what walk am I going to take? I can take the easy walk, which is being like everybody else, not caring not all my friends I hung around with, or it would be the route of either alcoholism, prison, or joining the military. Um, that's the only way at that time 
off the reservation. So there were choices there. I had to, or I could learn everything that I can to uh, survive this or to be strong. So I needed the dance to keep me strong. I needed the sun dance that I can go into the center of and pray. So the center pole of the sun dance gave me strength where I took all my my um my um worms or where I took where I was pain where the pain hurt the most was not having a mother and not having a uh, brother or a sister or not having general um um support here. So uh my mother died when I was young at eighteen and there was just path of the I, I well, my heart was hurting so that's why I went into the Sundance to get into pain of my mother and my brother who was a year older than me, he came back from Vietnam and he told me what kind of pain he went through and shortly after he was home he uh, ran into a bridge. I don't know if it was intentionally or maybe he had alcohol. I took alcohol, but the pain he was in, I carried that. So the memories of both of them, so the memories of both of them really, really um, brought a sense to me where I wanted to leave a path of um, healing, a path of knowing, and a path of um, being who I am in a way, but I didn't know how to do it. So the Sundance belief, I kept every summer I'll go to the Sundance. Sometimes we would go out and fast alone in the mountains or whatever. So so I kept it kind of alive in me and then and then I adopted um, two children, then uh, three children, then finally had of my own. So I had four children, and I was living in a little a little trailer house, a two-bedroom trailer house. And in the winter, it would be cold, and I had to turn the heat up to stay awake in case, you know, just so we don't get on fire or something. That's how I raised my, uh, how, how I raised my uh, children at a very young age. And then it, then it got to where I got, you know, I had a better pin, a little better pin job, so I moved into the next town, which was harder to support them. As time on, I had better education for my son, um, uh, Todd, so I contact uh, Susan Kelly, who had a um, program there sponsoring Native youth, and got her address from this um, friend of mine who sent her daughter to that program, and she said, hey, you should send your son. It's a good program. It's uh, global youth and about people from all over the world, and and I just was so happy to be right away. My son and we started talking, and then I went to meet. Then um, one day I told her, I said, you know, 
I have this blank of land here. I have four acres that I inherited. I inherited a lot more, but there acres here. I would like to use it for something like you do. Can you help me? And she said, yes, can help you. And she said, but you got to tell me what you need and what, you know, what you want. So then I told her that I wanted to, um, I wanted to uh, build my, uh, build something here, a house first. And so then father came for a visit during our um, annual crow fair. And he came down at camp with me and he took a shower in my little tree house, which I put our hand wall to turn the water on and off because of the winter and and so so when we were talking he said Peggy are you interested in building a house and I yeah someday I the land and I I really would like to build my own and I said um I was talking to Susie about uh doing something in Strawbale house then Susie and he talked and talked and he said, Well, can I help? I send for um someone that would help us and I said, Sure, that would be great in the land and then a month later he calls me and he said, I found uh University of Washington our architect school in Seattle that had a um, are interested and I said, Well, uh I'll talk to him, and I couldn't believe it. And then they came and looked at my land, and they made me this. But then, right then and there, remembered I said, you know, and then I said, if I'm to have a lucky day, or if I'm ever to receive something, I want to give that to the children, to the young people who could understand what really has happened to us historically, and, and to try to to try to heal on on just uh, making better choices. And Peg- Peggy, may I may I just intrude uh, apologetically? Of course, uh, I am curious. You've said so much that is worth listening to and hearing. I'd like to continue with your discussion of your background and the school when we return from our first break in about three minutes. But before then, I'd like to uh, pose the question to Susan. Susan, obviously looking at your name, Susan Kelly, European, evidently Irish, background rather different. Mine as well would be rather different. What was your reaction to the Sundance and to the activities that Peggy has just described, your initial reactions? Well, um, I am very interested in people who are very different than me. So, and I've always been that way. And it was just fascinating. It was just fascinating to... uh, to learn about something that was in the United States that I sort of knew something about, and I've always had that interest in Native people. 
but to really embrace the difference, which most people from the outside who have not spent a lot of time in this community have no idea the differences that exist in the world. And this, this, this belief system and all the parts of it are completely unknown to most people in America. And these people have been here for a long time, and they've survived, and they carry this very fascinating, deep culture within them. And, you know, my reaction was, I want to learn more. And that probably explains why I've been here so long. When you say you want to learn more, I can relate to what you're saying in that I tend to want to embrace difference myself. There's an elemental beauty to it. I'm looking at the clock and timing myself by segments here. We're within one minute of our first station break. The question I'd like to posit to you is the difference itself. Is there a deeper understanding that you've gotten as an Anglo woman, that you feel that an indigenous person born on the res would not have? And if that's the case, how have you applied it, and how would you transmit it to a Western audience, such as the majority of my own listening audience will be? Now, I'm going to take the break because I'm loath to interrupt either of you. Peggy, you have so many things to say that are quite lovely and poignant, and Susan, your expressions take the listening audience to the point where they're understanding things themselves. So we'll be back in a moment. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Now, this is Robert. The program is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. This is the second segment of a very interesting program with Ms. Susan Kelly and Peggy White. They're at the center pole on the Lodge Grass Montana Crow Reservation. Ladies, if we could uh, begin that discussion of how you introduce your young people to experiences of the outside world. Um, we uh, <clears throat> we introduce our young people by having a lot, an in exchange with visitors from all over the world who come here to visit. They're interested in Native culture, and we're interested in the youth learning about the outside world. So uh, people come here of all different types for all different reasons and to get all different types of cultural immersion. And at the same time, the youth are learning about people from around the world. The other thing we do is we send youth out uh, to have uh, experiences where they're on their own and where they have to deal themselves with a new culture. And, you know, sometimes they're three weeks, sometimes they're college experiences, sometimes they're pre-college experiences, which is the best thing because then uh, the youth are prepared for higher education. Um, but there are all sorts of volunteer experiences that people have the opportunity to, or youth have the opportunity to go on through us. And we have a, a network around the country 
that we tap those resources in order for these uh, experiences to happen. Susan, how do you prepare young people who feel that they're inherently gifted, they have the intellectual ability, how do you prepare them to go on to college? Because it entails leaving the reservation and so many new experiences. Uh, well, we, we provide those experiences. We help uh, assist the youth in moving beyond um, their barriers and uh, being able to learn to talk to people uh, the radio is a big thing with us, having youth learn how to speak publicly and not be shy and not uh, to learn how to speak um, and express themselves, which is not something that everyone is allowed to do here. So um, they learn to say what their opinions are. That's a big thing. Because when you're a college student or you're somewhere, people ask you questions, they ask your opinion, and a lot of the youth aren't used to giving their opinion. So we do a lot of practice things here, and especially with, as I said, with visitors. Um, just learning how to speak to people who have different accents, you know, often, often or, or a larger vocabulary or a larger English vocabulary or hearing different languages. That's how we prepare the youth to uh, go beyond their, the bounds of the reservation. I'd like to perhaps then direct the next question to you, Peggy. Your English is quite lovely. It's quite good. I'm sure it's superior to the understanding of Indian languages on the part of uh, many academics I've encountered on a college level. How did you go about teaching yourself the English language, and how do you express the English language to students so that they'll be able to go into the outside Anglo world? Um, this is Peggy. Well, everything we do here on the reservation is self-taught. We either pick it up from the old people and... We do have English spoken on the reservation, and um, we do have parents that know uh, English and Crow. So therefore, if you're in a family that um, speaks both, then you have a better chance at learning um, the English um, language pretty quickly. But if you have parents both speaking Crow all the time and that's your first language in the home, then um, um, English kind of, um, you have to learn right from the beginning, uh, when you start school probably in first kindergarten, and that's where you learn the English language. And a lot of times, um, you know, we have that language, um, English-speaking barrier, or if we have a hard time with it. It's like the ranchers here who only speak English in their um, ranch ways. And if they don't send their kids to school, or if they do, there's a limited uh, knowledge of um, English. And that's where uh, some of the um, 
Crow uh, children's stand is almost the same level as them. But because we're brown and uh, we have a color to us, um, we fail in schools, like in public schools, who are being, who our teachers are non-Indian. And that also has a uh, kind of a racial thing going. I must ask you then, Peggy, and it is a question that haunts us here in New York State, as well as most places in the country, are you saying that the racism and the racial prejudice makes the situation much more difficult for Native Americans? Yes, yes. I dealt with racism and still is as old as I am. We still have racism living high off the hog here in Montana. And... um we're always, um, you know, and and I know, I see it, and especially when it happens to our children that go to school off reservation. We have one public school, and that's in the town of Hardin, Montana, where they have grade school, clear to high school. Their schools are upbeat. They have a swimming activity, a place to swim. They have a tennis court. They have a football field. They have everything. But here on the Crow Reservation, you do not have one. They use the coal tax money, Indian money, to get all the revenues from the state of Montana to build that. But here on the Crow Reservation, there's none. They don't have a place to go swim. They go to the rivers, which now are contaminated. They go to play outdoors you know we don't have a field a football field nor anything where they can express their ability but the children that go to Hardin High School who are really uh, athletes and who really excel in that are mostly crow crow kids but um, uh, the racism is there you know, they they get all the money to educate here on the reservation. We don't, our standards are lower here. Our teachers are, you know, not so great. So the teachings are not very good at all. Pursuing this thought, and it's really a, something that gives rise to a great deal of passion. I know in myself, and I'm sure in most of my listeners, that something so outrageous would take place at this time. It's 2018. We should have come farther along the way. Susan, has there been any effort to politically organize adult voters on the reservation? Well, we're always busy organizing adult voters. And we register voters. We, we send them to websites where they can register. We provide transportation to, to elections. Um, we do anything in our power to get the Indian vote out because it's just so important because it's 
there's just such a division. And the Native people, there's seven reservations here in Montana. They all need to have a voice, and they all need to, uh, to, to get their opinions out there. They need to, we encourage people to join the school boards and all those kind of things. So, um, yes, we do make a big effort to do that. That's sort of part of what we normally do, if you know what I mean. We're our Indeed. youth programs. Um, it's just you know we're here to empower the people in the community, and having a vote is very important. And ex you know exercising your vote, your your right to vote is very important. Has any specific individual from your res community? gone into political life and achieved a politically elected position? <clears throat> yes, there, there are people um, who have held positions. Um, in fact, the, uh, their, uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember her name. Um, Peggy should speak to this anyway, since she's a member of the Native community. Um, oh gosh, um, oh gosh, Denise, yeah, her name is Denise, oh gosh, her last name slipped. <laughs> That's perfectly all right, Peggy. Denise is good enough. Uh-huh. Tell us a bit about what she does and how she is an example for the community. Well, she was a, a, a director of the Office of Public Instruction in Montana, and she directed uh, what the public schools. She was the head of the public schools. And uh, then she went on, she ran for the Senate, but she lost. So, you know, she's, she's not the crow, but uh, she's from another reservation. But, you know, people, people look to her because they felt like they would give the, the Native people a voice. Now, I'm speaking to you from many hands away. What can anyone in the listening audience do to rectify so many injustices that have accrued over the years? Either Peggy or Susan, either one of you can take this question, but what would you ask of outsiders, what would you ask them and ask of them as to how they can assist? Well, I would say probably include or ask for inclusion of Native American people when statistics are done and stuff like that. Oh, we have, I'm sorry, we have all our employees knocking on the, on the doors, finding us, and then banging the door down, even though we have a sign saying not to. So I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this in heaven, too. What if, what if, what I would say is, whenever they do statistics, you always hear about the number of Hispanics and the number of um, African Americans. You never hear the number of Natives. And I would say demand to know the percentage, you know, percentage when the government does things. 
because the Native people are always left out. That's one thing I would say to do. Um, another thing is to take interest in Native communities and try to, to know them. If there's one next to you, to know it. If there's one that you're, you're on a vacation, try to know it. Um, just try to ra- raise the level of uh, knowledge and compassion for Native communities. And I, I realize that part of that is just not an understanding. Um, I know when I first came here and I would drive through an Indian reservation, I would just be so curious, and I just wouldn't, there would never be a place where I could find information, because when I would go into a town, that town was really never representative of the people. It's representative of the government um, and the government's control over the people. Like when you, if you go to visit the town of Crow Agency, there are all uh, federal buildings there. There's no, there aren't places that you can really try to understand who the people are. And, of course, the people are very shy to strangers for the same reason, that they've been kept isolated. So it's very difficult to make contact. And that was one of the things when we invented our organization and created it. We wanted it to be open for people to really understand who Native people are. And so that's why we've continued to develop it as a place where people could come to get that information. I think it was the information I was always looking for in the beginning that didn't exist. So I suggest you come visit. I suggest everybody stop by. And, uh, you know, when they're driving by on their quest across the United States, we're not right next to I-90, and that people stop in and say hello. And that's, you know, that's how a good, healthy interchange can begin. I do know that uh, you're going to have a guest uh, within a few months, uh, i.e. myself. I'm sure that those in the listen audience who want to see a beautiful community and a beautiful part of the country uh, would be willing to come we're within a minute of our second station break. I'm wondering uh, if when we come back, we could talk about the individual experiences on the reservation, what the average person does from dawn until dusk. And Susan, if you could start us off on that, and then I will refer to Peggy when we come back. So if you could tell us about the normal reservation day for those in my listening audience who simply have no conception, their idea of a reservation day is dances with wolves. How would you describe what goes on? <laughs> oh, should I do it now or wait until you come back? Uh, well, we have 50 seconds to go. I think it might be best to wait, but harbor your thoughts and nurture them, contour them, and both of you can share with us the details of the event. I'm sure that people need to know, in part because they want to know, they just do not have the opportunity. There is the question of judging the rose before the fragrance, as the poet says, in a sense knowing what it's all about but not seeing the absolute necessity of touching it, being on the reservation, seeing both the joy, the family, the extended relationships, and the poverty. We're going to be back in a few minutes and we'll continue this rather interesting discussion.
My name is Robert. The program is seldom set. We'll be back in a moment. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Special guest, Susan Kelly, Peggy White from the Crow Reservation in Montana. Peggy, this has been an eventful hour, to say the least, but there is much that has been said and shared by both you and Susan that is worthwhile remembering. Can you tell us, Peggy, the typical reservation day? The average person just living their lives outside the community. Basically, what is done from sunrise to sunset? Well, this is actually Susie talking. Um, I just wanted to say that it's just like everybody. Everybody gets up, goes to work. Everybody gets up, goes to school. Um, The thing I would say that's different is that uh, the cycle operates on the ceremonial cycle of the Crow people. So it's a completely different drum beat than um, people probably realize. Uh, In the summers, there's um, a lot of ceremonies that go on, uh, sun dances every weekend, which are we mentioned them before, the prayer ceremonies that take four days of sacrifice, dancing without, uh, dancing to the center pole without water, uh, without food for four days, um, praying uh, all, all through the night, all through the day for whatever thing you're in the, in the Sundance for. So those are going on. So everybody's lives are centered around ceremonies. Um, the other things that happen is there's social uh, powwows and things like that that happen um, on different reservations, and people travel to those. And uh, people spend a lot of time out in nature. They go buffalo hunting. They go deer hunting. They hunt elk. They prepare traditional foods. They harvest berries. Um, they spend a lot of time in the wilderness. Um, it's, it's, they train their horses, they uh, compete with their horses, um, they swim the rivers, they, uh, it's, it's a life that is focused on um, nature and the ceremonial cycle. So it's very different. People watch TV. I mean, they do the regular things. They're on the Internet. They watch TV, and they do those things. But families are tightly knit, and they'll do these uh, ceremonial activities together. So I would say it's just it's not that different. It's just that a lot of traditional Native Americans spend a majority of their life praying in prayer. When they get up in the morning, they'll pray, and then they will have sweats, sweat lodges. And, uh, but everything is conducted towards the sun and the moon and things they need to do with their children, such as have naming ceremonies, 
where the child is given a name or um, first uh, taking their first step. Uh, there's just ceremony. I mean, there are ceremonies that go along with with crow lives uh, that are done. And so a lot is, and each one takes a really long time. <laughs> and each one, in my opinion, costs a lot of money to be able to do these things. But this is how the culture has survived. So you know, Native people are no different than uh, anybody else in this world. They're humans, and they're, they're, uh, they have a specialness about them because of the way that they view um, life, death, birth, all the things in life that we all know. If I were anyway, to... Oh, please continue. Go ahead. No, go ahead. If I were to pose a question, it does not matter as to which of you takes the answer, uh, either yourself, Susie, or Peggy. The answer is the prerogative. That's the important thing. I'd like to uh, ask a question of Peggy. If... If we're talking about religious ceremonies, the Sundance, the sweats, what are the duties of women on the reservation when it comes to spiritual things? Well, spiritual things wouldn't happen if it wasn't for the women. The women are the ones who usually close the ceremonial Maybe the men will start it, and maybe the men will build the lodges. But the women close up the ceremonial. The women are very important in any role they do because they're the um, they're the um, caretakers in any you know in the house. They take care of everything. The men are looked as protectors. They're the ones who watch watch um, to see everything is um, protection. They're protected. The men built the lodges like the, the um, talking about the Sundance, and the men started, and the men lead it, but at the closing part, the women bring their water in and give them all water and pray for the water before for the people and that's how they close up that ceremonial. Then they'll prepare the food for the feast after, after the uh, four-day um, ordeal of the Sundance. And in the same way with um, the Native American church, the male may uh, open up as being the chief, but then at the end, in the morning, when the sun first comes up, that little peak, or at midnight, the uh, woman bring the water in and pray for the water. And when they come out, the women do pray for the water for each and every one of them. And the women are the water uh, ones who close up any ceremonial, uh, the crow. I'm talking about the crow. This is not about the uh, Dakotas or the... Navajos or certainly, anyone, but certainly. this is this is this is crow of Salo Gap people. So um, you know, there's different. Uh, um, uh, even in the home today, the woman still 
is uh, the caretaker of the home and the caretaker of the children. And the men will uh, provide. And then we have a cultural a, um, clan system, which is very sacred. You have your clan mother and your clan father. Your clan mother is the mother clan. Your mother is born. If you're born, I mean, like, your children are clans of their mother, the mother. The father is the clan father relative or the clan father um the clan father uh, is the ones who keep them in prayer, who keeps them, uh, um, you know, if things aren't going right in their home. The the uh, homekeeper, I mean, the uh, the uh, prayer keepers for the children of their clan children. So we have this clan system going on. Peggy, who keeps the history, the stories? There were Crow Scouts with Custer, and when I speak to persons connected with the reservation, stories are passed on and told, and it's almost like listening to somebody who was there. Who is responsible for keeping the stories? The family is. Each family has their story, and there's always the elder of the family who keeps the history of the family. We all don't live under one history. We all have our own histories. We all have our our generations back who have uh, passed stories down, stories down. So that's how the family stories are kept, and that's where our history is all verbal. And some are written, but you know, then um, you can't include me with all crow families are like that. This is my family, and what I've known, the beliefs I know. Or I'm trained in a way where my family has, how my family has trained me. And that's the same way with each and every family. A question for Susie. Susie, we live in an age where women are becoming more proactive, more aggressive in presenting their views. Do you feel from observation and experience that the opportunities for a woman on the reservation are equivalent, as little as they may be, to those of a male? Well, I think in the past, different roles have been given. Well, at least Crow women always had a leading role in their lives, in the lives of their children and the lives of their families, and in the lives of ceremonies. But as Western um, sort of beliefs were superimposed upon the Crow people, then men began to take over some of the things that women did. For example, um, long ago, women were in charge of sun dances. And then when the Western beliefs were superimposed on the Crow, men began to take roles. And pretty soon, everybody forgot that the women were uh, the ones that were in charge of the Sundances. And there was a long history of the Sundance being lost and forgotten and the U.S. government taking it away from the Crow people. There's all that mixed in there, too. So, but recently, um, Peggy, 
uh, well-known buffalo is the first woman to sponsor sun dances. And uh, she sponsored, she sponsored uh, four sun dances in the early uh, 2000s. And that was not something that was accepted because the memory had kind of been lost that women were in charge. But she did it anyway, like she does, and uh, began to sponsor sun dances. So that opened up a lot for Crow women to have a woman reclaim that. So there, I think just women have to be proactive and they have to, they can look back in their history or they can just do things. A question that I'd like to pose to Peggy, we only have five minutes left uh, in what is always an interesting hour whenever we speak. Can you describe Crow Fair? Because it is something that is distinctively Indian and something distinctively different. And if nothing else excites the interest of the Anglo, African American, Asian, whomever audience, it would be Crow Fair. What is it? How did it develop? And what do you hope to do for next year? Um, Crow Fair started way back, back, and I believe maybe it started 2,000 years ago. But um, since um, the calendar existed, um, people have um, uh, said this year is our 100th year of celebration, and I don't know where that number came from, but... I know my ancestors celebrated together many, many, many years ago. Um, Anyway, Crow Fair is a celebration where it's our Christmas, we call it, and then we call it it's our New Year's, when all our families and friends across the world come in uh, camp. We have a camp, and we put up our teepees, and then during the day, they have a rodeo and they have Indian relays and stuff like that during the afternoons. And then during the morning, they have um, a parade. And the parade is all um, people in the tribe who rides their horses and dress in their best regalia or their best stuff that was passed down, like old um, Indian saddles crow saddles, uh, Indian, um, I mean, crow regalia, really crow. It's all crow. And um, crow are of Salugat tribe. We um, we really wear the finest when we um, compete, and um, our families are all dressed up. And that's when all families get out and um, uh, show themselves in their best um traditional way. Uh, Then in the afternoon, they'll have dances, like they'll have competitions, like um, fancy dancing, um, you know, um, traditional crow, traditional southern, you know, all traditional different dances through through Indian country, Um, jingle dress dancing and 
all of these creative dances each uh, nation has. And then they'll compete during the uh, evenings. And then at the end of Crow Fair, they'll select um, the best dancer during that time. And then they'll have grand entry, which they all come in and they dance to the rhythm and um, uh, for the uh, to open up the uh, dancing uh, arena or the dancing floor. Um, most of it, it all started way back when when um, the government didn't allow us to have any, they called them hot dances, war dances anymore. And the Crow got together and they'll have a uh, garden show. And in the garden show are the, uh, the uh, showing off their garden products, like whatever they grew, then they would dance to celebrate. And then some of them, they'll get together way up in West Yellowstone, where we used to own, and they'll kill their buffalo, they'll kill whatever they need to eat and start settling uh, down Peggy, for if the I, winter. If I may, it's a lovely story that I'm afraid, given time constraints, we'll have to save for another program. I am going to have to bring our conversation to a close. My final words and the words of my listening audience are thank you for the experience. We hope that uh, we'll see people at Crow Fair or on the reservation. And we hope that what we deal with are not just your words that you so kindly shared, but the experience attached to those words, seeing a hunt, the dance, the entrance, That will be our pleasure. I would have to say goodbye for the moment. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Robert.